Gentlemen, we have a funeral. The funeral is for my spine. This fridge weighs a ton. I'm in agony here. Can't we have just used a coffin like everyone else? Don't worry. The worst is over. All we need to do now is have a quick service, give a little push, and the fridge containing Justin's mortal remains will slide into the water. Great plan of mine, burying Justin at sea. Well, burying him in a few centimetres of water in a child's paddling pool. You didn't even fill it all the way up. No need. You're forgetting displacement. By my calculations, when the volume of the fridge is added to the foot-high paddling pool, it'll be completely submerged. This would have been that maths you did on the back of a takeaway menu. I was focused on the catering for the wake. I can't be expected to consider every small detail. Did you hear something? It sounded like it came from inside the fridge. Probably delayed death spasms. Oh, let's just get on with it. <clears throat> Gentlemen. There's only me here. Hello. Leo. We are gathered here today to pay our last respects to Justin Philip Thomas Emily Wyatt, our late lamented friend and pod co-host, who was so tragically exploded and fridge tossed to death not a week ago during a video game parody sketch. Oh, we all heard the gory, grisly details at the inquest. How his delicate body must have been flash-fried in an instant by a raging fireball before the blast wave sent his still-sizzling body barrel-rolling into a nearby open refrigerator, from which he was dipping his Doritos in salsa mere moments before he deliberately cut the red wire on a bomb just to see what would happen. And as the fridge blew out through the roof, his still crispy body must have become smeared in the various foodstuffs, like some kind of exotic marinated casserole, as he bounced around inside for some distance, the shock no doubt tenderizing his flesh, as it barely clung to his white steaming bones. The juices of salsa, cream cheese, real tomato puree and various other condiments and spices frothed and mingled together in Justin's sealed iron tomb slash soup box. I'm happy! So, so happy! I don't know about you guys, but all I could think about the whole time I was at the inquest was some barbecue spare ribs, and maybe that crispy chicken on skewers. So, uh, let's get on with this wake, and as I've skipped breakfast, I'm jolly hungry, so let's bury this fridge and go have some chow and smoke grills. Mm. I don't want to go! Well, of course you don't want to go to your own wake, Justin. You're a vegetarian, and it's shaping up to be a meat festival. No, wait. He couldn't actually still be alive in there. Leo, what are you doing? It's no use trying the handle. If it could be opened, someone would have done it by now. Oh, that's uh, that's much better, thank you. Justin, you're alive! Yes, no thanks to Captain Gutso here. You see, this is why I hate working with you guys. No one's got any initiative around here. Didn't see you trying the handle. Quick on the garlic bread, though. Just as well he didn't try to open the fridge, I think he would have likely have eaten me. Um, you've got to watch that type. Be thankful we didn't get marooned on a desert island with him. Weeks later, when the rescue boats arrive, there'll be only one fat survivor dabbing the corners of his mouth with a napkin. Why would I want to open the fridge? No one could have survived that. You were obviously dead. Obviously. I mean, how did you survive all that time without food or water? You must be near death with malnourishment. I had chilled bottled mineral water to drink, and, and the fruit and veg tray was intact and fully stocked. It's been a good week, diet-wise. I think I've detoxed. Never felt better. Speaking of detox, you must smell like a Klingon's lavatory by now. You must have infected sores and cholera and stuff. What do you do about all your human waste? 
Well, I'd steer clear of the semi-skinned carton. The milk's off, shall we say. Other than that, I'm fine. What about air? How did you breathe? Hand-waving. I'm hand-waving your question away. La 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 la. Yeah, you didn't stop being a Mr. Logic nitpicker. Justin's alive. Would you rather he was dead, just so your limited and narrow perspective on reality can survive intact? Well, of course. I mean, no. But how on earth did he survive in the fridge after it flew two miles up in the air and came down, bouncing down the side of a mountain? Just lucky, I guess. Lucky? We didn't get any luck. That explosion you caused buried Leo and me alive in an underground bunker and we had to dig our way out with nothing but a pair of Sony game controllers. How come you didn't run out of there, huh? Well, it turns out it was not so much a bunker, more a kind of above-ground shed. Ian, 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 this isn't really about Justin, is it? This is about how that same fridge thing happened in that movie once and... You had a stroke in the cinema, isn't it? Well, yes, actually. Belief wasn't willingly suspended. It was dragged out into the street at night, kicking and screaming, and strung up to a lamppost by Spielberg and Lucas in front of its wife and children. It ruined the whole Indiana Jones franchise, that did. Well, there we are. Let's talk it all over, then. And on goes my leather-brown jacket and hat. Uh, anyone seen my bullwhip? All I've seen is your copious amounts of bullshit. EM focus. Indie time. Now, let's regress to the beginning. Raiders. Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. So, yes, uh, welcome to the 80s Kids uh, therapy session for Ian uh, regarding disappointing sequels. Um, before... I've got a long list of them I want to work through, so we'll just do in yeah, this yeah. day, though. But before we, uh, before we get on to the, the painful moment, uh, let us instead travel back. And, and, you know, the best way to deal with something painful um, is some kind of loss or, you know, some kind of uh, contra-tom disagreement falling out is to remember when things were good. So let's go back to, uh, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is, this is, uh, it's 19... like marriage counselling. Try and remember the good times you had together. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, it's 1980, isn't it? I'm right about 81, that. 81, I think. 81, okay, 1981. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And before this, uh, obviously we knew Harrison Ford as Han Solo. And then suddenly here, here it was, Indiana Jones. And... I suppose it bears repeating, because we talked about it, obviously, during the top five, that I I didn't really get Indiana Jones for a long time. I didn't really understand what that was all about. And re-watching it last night, I came to several conclusions about why that might have been. But let's go instead to people who are, you know, more versed in the ways of more sort of uh, 
got it straight away. We're right in there. Yeah. First of all, uh, so that Ian's got a chance to, to sort of let it marinate in his head. Justin, Indiana Jones. I mean, you've you've, you've already you've already of course picked it as a favourite. Yeah, absolutely. But... Um, I, this kind of this was a film that kind of picked me up and threw me around and said, watch this uh, at least once a year now for several years. I was kind of blown away, I have to say. I, I, I found the whole thing exhilarating. It's kind of non-stop. And it's one of those films, it's like even... I mean, I've watched it umpteen times, and I still forget certain sequences or the order of things. Certain things kind of surprise me. And having watched it very recently, um, yeah, I, it just moves along at a pace. It's, um, it's always going somewhere different. There's, you know... And then the reason for that is a punch up, a, a chase. It kind of leaves you breathless, really, to the end. I absolutely adore uh, Indiana Jones, and I think it's just the it was a combination, really. I mean, the action adventure thing is, especially for the age I was watching, it was absolutely critical. I I was completely ready for that. This the escapism, just the joy of it. Then there's the the kind of John Williams music, which is I mean, you're net you know, Everyone who hears that theme tune for the first time will never forget it. I mean, it is iconic. It's probably one of the most iconic kind of pieces of theme music, musical theme that's ever been created. And with John Williams, generally, he his contribution to to films. I mean, he def definitely improves a film. It's it, it's a complete. I mean, good music will do that anyway. But his stuff particularly. So you've got him wrapped in that. You've got you've got Harrison Ford, who is just I mean, you know, I thought Harrison Ford was the coolest character ever as Han Solo, and here he is as this remarkable figure who's who's kind of cynical, he's romantic, he's kind of you know, he's he's a bit klutzy, even though he's like this action hero, he's always getting beaten up, he's always making mistakes and kind of just get about getting through from, you know, one one scene to the next. All of that is very endearing for an action hero. You know, this guy is not on a pedestal doing stuff perfectly. And it's clever. There's kind of fun stuff. I like I like the uh, religious kind of iconography. And of course, you know, it's got the it's got the biggest, baddest bad guys that's ever, ever existed in all of reality. The Nazis. I mean, it's pretty much perfect. And I will and that, I will end it there. Ian? Well, I was I was a mite, a young mite at the time this film came out, but I still remember going to see it. I remember walking out the cinema with my dad and my brother, and my dad assuring me that those weren't real people melting at the end. They were just dummies. I don't remember being particularly disturbed by it at the time. I more remember my dad making a fuss about making sure I wasn't disturbed by it. Uh, yes, uh, as as a very young small boy, it was just a, a joyous ride of, of, of violence and interesting things happening. You know, it's very hard to be bored watching Indiana Jones. And I, I suppose the more the stronger memories I have of it is watching it on video afterwards. I suppose that's and also this is the film I really clocked Harrison Ford. No, Harrison Ford was uh, was you know he was also Han, Han Solo, obviously. But this is the film where he really stood out. You know, as a central character, you weren't focused on Luke or anything else that was going on. It was it's all it's all Harrison Ford all the way. And uh, this this is when I was like, I thought Harrison Ford was the most awesome, you know, Hollywood actor that ever existed at the time. Like I, I put I cast him in everything if I could. It, it was of a time where you know a part of the publicity of a movie would be they put out a making of. Documentary and these things were fascinating in themselves. This was back in the day before CGI, so you know special effects were all about tricks and how we pulled these things off. And you know it was the same truck used throughout the movie. We just blew it up at the end, you know. 
And I found that fascinating, the kind of deconstructing how the effects were done. And it's also in terms of in terms of impact, it, the whole indie franchise has been something that was was a huge influence on one of my friends who was who was seriously into this whole kind of uh, temple beladen with traps. He he also watched King Solomon's Mines as well for exactly the same reason. And um, yeah, so you know he would, he would mock up uh, these uh, temples out of card, uh, which action figures could navigate their way through. I even had because if if, if a figure existed for it, my dad bought it for me. I had the Indiana Jones action figure, and they oh. and they they also released uh, like the Nazi guy in, in the leather jacket. I forget his name now. Uh, and they also had a Marion, which I never owned. But the the other figure they released was the sword swinging dude. He had an action yeah. figure. <laughs> so and and he came with like a, a a fabric robe, and if you took it off, he was basically naked except for a little tight black nappy. Um, nice. Anyway, we, um, as I quickly lost the robe, he became the character. He was just like basically naked, apart from his head scarf and a black nappy on him. That for some reason didn't get played with very much, except when I wanted a Klingon in the background for some reason. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, it was it was kind of huge. I mean, talking about eighties kids and Indiana Jones is just kind of one of those very special texts if you're an eighties kids and if you if you were there at the time, it it was a thing. We'll discuss the sequels as we get into them, but the first film is definitely the best, one of the, the biggest impact, and it is it is Raiders, not Indiana Jones Raiders Lost Ark. It's Raiders and Raiders is, is in that that slanted. You know, iconography that we see in Jones these days, that text, what would you call it, Justin? You have, you'd know these sort of graphic terms better than I would. So, yeah, it, it was just like one of those things in the soup. It was, it was another Spielberg, uh, Lucas, these guys can't put a foot wrong movie that was coming out that didn't seem to win any Academy Awards. Um, not that bothered me at the time. Just, 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 you know, part of the, the landscape of my childhood. It, it, it's gravitational influence, as it were. Uh, you, Leo? Um, yeah, you see, now this is the thing. The, <clears throat> I think my problem watching the film last night is that I was quite into sort of history. People bought me, like, history books and, and whatnot. I think if you come with a completely blank mind to Indiana Jones, like, you don't know what to expect, and then you watch, and then he does the bit with the Golden Idol, and then there's the bit with the Rolling Rock, and then there's the bit in Harvard, and then it, it's, you know, it becomes apparent that they're talking about this this stuff. I think you kind of roll along with it, and, then, you know, the script does a good job of explaining what you've got to know. But if you know anything about it, then you start to get confused about what people are talking about, because... There are things people remember about old older films or the way that they made films back in the day and then things that they don't. And one of the things that I don't think they remember is that Indiana Jones embraces its ludicrousness to because that and I think it was something to do with the fact that it was 1981 and you know they probably didn't have as much money as they would have today. They had no CG, so every effect had to be optical, and so, or you know, you know, reality. There was some sense of reality to it, and therefore certain bits were going to be a bit rough. Or, and you're trying to simulate as well. Indiana Jones isn't a straight-up action movie. It's sort of a pastiche of of, of a different type of media such as radio serials and, and stuff like that so there's a kind of layer of it's a story about other types of story as well as being the story that it is um and at that level it gets quite complicated and so if you don't understand that but you do understand that you know archaeology isn't about running around in trap filled tombs or you know you understand you know i remember side cut away um 
diagrams of what the inside of the pyramids was like and things like that and how the burial chamber was arranged and, and if that if you're a child you don't understand that somebody could just make some stuff up about something mm. that isn't that so i never understood what people were talking about why people were shouting at each other what was going on and i just didn't really understand it eventually i got hold of the comic book adaptation of it and read that and they put lots of extra expository stuff into the little boxes at the top so it tells you this is this and these men are scared because of this and blah 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 until then i didn't really understand it no watch the film again i went oh so that's what it's about great and then i could proceed with the rest mm. of the series but yeah I, I at first it was completely baffling to me and for several reasons i mean you, it's interesting that you say that your friend became obsessed with trap-filled tombs. I don't think before Indiana Jones, I was trying to rack my brains to think of something that, yes, tombs could be dangerous, much like the ship in the Poseidon Adventure is dangerous. Like people understood that you could open a tomb and then there's loose rocks and there's, the places haven't been touched for years and statues can fall over on you and there could be areas where the oxygen has got sucked out. And that's, I mean, the original, the novel, Age Rider Haggard, King Solomon's Mines, has no, in when they go into the mines, there are no traps. Nobody deliberately trapped the mines. The mines were just dangerous because they were old and because they were built many years ago and wooden beams had rotted and things like that. That is the, the you know, that's what people naturally thought. And then along come Lucas and Spielberg and go, what if they just filled it full of like things that blow darts out of the wall and big rolling rocks and spears that shoot out of the wall? And since that sequence, I mean, that's like a, what, a seven minute piece of cinema that has completely changed the way that everyone develops fictional tombs from that point forward, from 1981 forward, every tomb in every video game, in every, it's just full of traps all yeah. the time. Although they are, it's kind of based on reality though, because the, the pyramid did have traps in it. Oh, right. And they, were, they did actually have a booby trap where the, they, I've seen it areas would fill with sand if you removed certain blocks so if someone broken in someone would basically seal off areas mm. you, so you do, you obviously they're very elaborate in the films but they are kind of based on reality to a very you know kind of loose extent and just uh, just taking that to the end i mean degree. Yeah, i mean you know a pressure towel that sends a poison dart and get pine but the whole breaking of the light thing i never quite got that, even I as mean, a that's kid. that's obviously complete you know kind of silliness and, yes. and they didn't have I'm not even sure how it works it's now way that work in reality but but you know it's it's taking that they were quite clever um the kind of Egyptians with putting various things in and uh, and so yeah the, 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 it's it's just it's just romanticizing that really yeah I guess it is I'm, 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 but the funny thing is fictionally that's the other thing fictionally I mean there, pro there probably were people who had mentioned it here and there but really, I'm, I'm not sure about the fiction of the time of the because I'm not really very familiar with that kind of cliffhanger stuff. I don't know. It might have come up in some TV series. Oh, obviously, no, but the, I mean, uh, sorry, some kind of cinema kind of things at the time, possibly. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing because there was so much pulp mm. that obviously somebody read this, that yeah. you know several people read the same notes and put it in as a plot element but the point is that 1981 really blew it up oh yeah absolutely now now you can't have a tomb that doesn't have traps yeah. in it, 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 it no we wouldn't have paradigm. we wouldn't have tomb raider we wouldn't have lots of films and it, it, it is plato's and... tomb isn't it really it sets the standard for all, all other ancient tombs doesn't it 
Yes, and that's that's the interesting, and that's just the beginning. That's just before we even mm. got to the proper credits. And I mean, the point is that you know this thing about it being consciously quite ridiculous follows us hot on the heels of the of the opening sequence when it goes, "Look, here is Harvard, and there he is in a suit teaching a mm. class with a blackboard." And maybe kids will let it gloss over them. But any adult would be like, so this guy is running around in these trap-filled tombs, and then a week later he's talking to a bunch of people with a piece of chalk in his hand. And it's that juxtaposition that they very consciously made. It's it's winking to the adults in the audience saying, yeah, and that's what he does for a day job. And you're like, okay. I mean, it is quite a character gear shift. You go from the beginning, you know, when he walks, he, he first is introduced to us as a, as a shadow, you know, with a ball whip and walking forward and having that intense glare as the light starts to cross his face and then you cut to later and he's a slightly bumbling professor in a tweed jacket who's slightly embarrassed by the fact his students are flirting with him and it's it's almost like two different people isn't it in a funny sort of way um which but again i mean you know we've got a a layer of of discourse there where it's saying you know that what they're saying is anyone who's who's like slightly klutzy and has a boring day job and is awkward about social situations inside them they have this bull whip well, rearing uh, and brown uh, jacket. Well, apparently wearing. the character was created by. Uh, I'm just. I, I I read the wiki earlier. It was it was it was created by a, a history professor or something. The gem of the idea came, and this was just a daydream. You know, he would w- imagine himself. But I think that carries through with. The fact that he's not a perfect hero, that he does make mistakes, so it's kind of like you you could kind of see you doing this if reality shifted and you were obviously uh, far more adventurous and heroic. But it, it is something that you know you like to entertain the fact that if you were you 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 could see yourself in that role, it's obviously ridiculous. But it's not like imagining yourself to being Superman or something, which is just obviously wouldn't happen. It's it, it's uh, well, it's just a little bit of grounding in reality, so that it, it's slightly more achievable. I think is why he's more likable. I think. Um, and one of the things I must uh, note here is that I think that much of it wouldn't have come off were it not for Harrison Ford. No. And I couldn't help but note uh, across the two movies that we watched last time. We watched uh, Rangers and we watched uh, Last Crusade. We 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 didn't so much skip Temple of Doom as go well. If you watch Temple, well, Justin's reasoning, which I couldn't fault, was that if we watched Temple of Doom, we'd feel compelled to stay up till three in the morning watching <laughs> uh, Last Crusade, and that wasn't going to happen. Whereas if we just did Last Crusade, we would not similarly feel compelled to go back and watch Temple of Doom. So yeah, that's the no, way. And I, li- I like all three films. So yeah. You know, so it's not a. It wasn't a kind of light award. I don't fancy yeah. that. Um, but what I noticed was that Harrison Ford, not as good an actor as he used to be. Because anything that you can paste him in in recent days, he kind of turns up and he kind of does this for a bit and then he goes away again. They wheel him but off again. He's, he seems to me, with Harrison Ford, if you give him the right type of character, he really shines with it. Han Solo, uh, you could say kind of... Uh, uh, is it De- Decker, isn't it? Decker, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Indy. Those three are standard performances, but they all occur in a very small period of time, relatively. Everything else outside of that, I've always been hugely disappointed with. I think famously, he's um, he was a carpenter, of yeah. course. And I think that one of the things about it is, and Indiana Jones in particular gave him a chance to, to explore this, is that uh, I think 
he got to a point after he'd been a carpenter and now he was a movie star where he's like, gosh, this is fun. This acting thing is is like one of these things where there's probably people who, you know, go into acting and that's what they want to do and they want to be an actor and they spend years honing their craft. And then some guy comes along and he just can act. And then he's kind of delighted at the prospect and then he's really good at it because he enjoys doing it. Like there's a lot of bits in Indiana, in in, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's just like facial expressions or ways that he plays things that another actor would be like, I would never have thought Mm. of doing that that way, of of delivering that line or doing that look or, you know, responding to the situation in the way that he does. But now I see it, it absolutely fits and it makes the character something different. Well, well, he did did, did make a very deliberate choice to move away from action movies and and do, you know, scare quotes, more serious roles. Uh, and I think that that you know he kind of tempered it down and made it a bit more real, and he he has you know, the more subdued performances have been since then. I I feel. I mean, he's been a bit, you know, he's never been. He's always been slightly kind of oh god, not Star Wars again, you know. Whenever he's been interviewed, and he has once described Han Solo as you know uh, barely self aware as as a, as, a, as a human being. He looks like he's having fun. He looks like he's having so much yeah. fun doing in Indiana Jones. But I, I get the feeling perhaps he isn't terribly down on the action uh, action genre though. You know. I think Indy's a bit more than just an action film, though. But maybe that's yeah. Well, I mean, I was just saying. I mean, I I was just surprised at the the nuance Mm. of his performance, which is interesting because you go and watch Cowboys and Aliens, and he just grumps around for a bit, and then that's it. It's it's kind of gone. I, it's it. You know, I guess I guess he just kind of. He's not a young man anymore. He's getting on a bit now. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's fit I mean, for his age, but you know he's he's cranking into his. It's not, about, about, it's, it's not about that though. It's not about the jumping around. It's like the difference between Peter Falk playing Columbo and Peter Falk playing the, the grandfather and the Princess Bride. That, that I mean, you know, one could argue that the grandfather and the Princess Bride is a is a much more nuanced Falk performance because he's aware he hasn't got as much screen time. He's also been Columbo for absolute years, and he, he just brings all these nice little Peter Falky touches to that, which is it shows a progression in his deep of his understanding of, of what it is he does. And Harrison Ford is almost the polar opposite of that. It seems like he's kind of gone, well, people seem to like it these days when I come out and go, rah, 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 and, and, and look grumpy. And that, so that's what I'll do. I didn't murder my wife. Oh, that one, yes, The Fugitive, of course. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I would have, would, would be interested in, in seeing again. That was one of those, another one of those 90s movies that seems to have come and gone and, and exist in a sort of hinterland of things we don't look at anymore. I think people like him when he's this kind of cocky kind of kind of character, that, all those, the, the hand solo, that people like that and with a bit of twinkle in his eye. And I think when he's moved away from that, there's just not enough of him to bring something else to it. I think he's very good at that. And lovable rogue. Just, he, just, he just can't really bring real interest to other roles, you know. I, he, I guess he just finds that, he must tap into it, he must find that if easier I'm, to do. If I was going to put a finger on it, I think that he, I think obviously as a carpenter becoming Han Solo, he was a man who believed he was a carpenter who suddenly thrust into, you know, being in a space no, he, opera. He, he was always... And, he was always an actor. I mean, he was being a carpenter because acting's hard. Yeah, no, but I mean, yeah, but then the point is that when you're in that position, you've trained to be an actor, and then all you can get is a job as a carpenter, you kind of go, well, maybe I'm not an actor. And what I'm trying to get to is that point where <clears throat> I think the minute that Harrison... Success might have 
damaged him. It, it's not damaged. It's just the fact that you have to, he has to retain that feeling of I don't really know what I'm doing. And every character that he has that he's played successfully, I think, has a point where he can engage with that. I'm doing this, but yeah. I don't really know how I've came to be in this situation. And the minute that he's Harrison Ford, who is Harrison Ford, and he gets on set and everyone's like, Harrison Ford is here. And then it's like, of course I can do this. The minute that he thinks I can do this, he can't act the anymore. Vul- the vulnerability really helps, it's the, it? it's the fact of, you know, because that's the point. Indiana Jones makes things up as he goes yeah. along, much the same as Harrison yeah. Ford on the film set at that point. Mm. And and it's the same, you know. So well, yes, but you know, famously, the <coughs> using the swordsman guy because he was ill and he just wanted to get the scene done. So he just went, okay, I think I should just shoot him. Well, we could all look forward to the return of Han Solo, age seventy-one. <laughs> mm. But anyway, yeah. So I mean, that's you know, Harrison Ford is is and across both movies, and the, the point is, you can see it slip. In the gap, I mean, that's one of the good things about watching Raiders and then watching Last Crusade is that Raiders is. I mean, one of the things that's interesting for that you said, Justin, was that you felt that it cracked along at a fair old pace. Whereas, actually, in terms of what is happening and, and what is going on, given the current way that people make films, it's quite sedate. The, the way that they fool you into thinking there's a lot of activity. Because I was, before I watched it, I looked at the back and I was like, it's nearly two hours long. How did they manage to spend two hours out of... Because I've remembered what the story mm-hmm. is. And the story isn't a, a two-hour story. But what it is is that Steven Spielberg steps in and he's like, first of all, he knows how to create an atmosphere. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of bits where you get 30 seconds of people walking over sand dunes and doing mm-hmm. stuff. But he cuts it and he frames it and he makes it into this soupy sort of uh, pulp cover uh, melange of different images where people just walking around and looking at things becomes very interesting. Mm. I mean, just the, the jungle bit right at the beginning, you see some men walk over a ridge and then through a thing and then there's a lot of walking and nobody's doing anything. People look a bit mildly concerned about something. You're never really sure about what. But, you know, Spielberg's made it into this tableau of different establishing yeah. mood shots. And then the other thing about it is that uh, the reason the actions, you know, some people identify action scenes in certain movies as protracted, whereas they don't. I mean, it really reminded me that the other time that Steven Spielberg was having as much fun as in in Indiana Jones and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, must have been weirdly the Lost World, the second Jurassic Park movie, because I went to I didn't see Jurassic Park at the cinema, uh, but I did go and see the Lost World at the mm. cinema. And one of the things about that is that he kind of says, well, if I'm going to make a sequel, if if that's where we're going with this, if I'm going to do a Jurassic Park 2, I don't want it to be Jurassic Park 1. So there's this extended uh, sort of catalogue of disaster that befalls the characters. And you just get this feeling of things, t- you know, Rube Goldberg-esque mm. sort of things worsening because this falls on that and that tips that over and that explodes this or this does that and then the character's like you know and the character always manages to just save themselves and then tip themselves into even worse something else is happening and this feeling and it's like I don't think I've identified another director that quite takes the the sort of precision planning of and then this will happen to the character and then they'll just about manage to reach that thing and pull the rope or whatever it is but then this falls over and they swing into that and they do and it, it just just keeps going yeah. just like and and 
instead, I mean, you know, obviously it'd be a bit exhausting if that was the whole movie, but he just goes, well, here's a sequence and we'll make that sequence last about six minutes and it'll be, you know, this, then that, then that. And, and, and so mixing all of those different types of, this is an establishing scene, this is a dialogue scene, this is a, this scene, is, it means that you feel like you're going somewhere, even though you're not going there as fast as you mm. believe you are in retrospect. What they've replaced that with these days is it actually moving that fast. Yeah. So they don't have to they don't have to do anything to make you feel like you're moving. You actually are seeing something zip by in a blur. And I think some people feel I'd like probably be somewhat in agreement that it's a bit cheap to actually make something move so fast that you can barely understand it. Uh, the artistry is in making something move slowly enough that you have a full appreciation of the nuance, but not for people to therefore get bogged down in it and feel if they're in the mood for something fast that that's what they're going to get. I mean, you know, these are things that are very small, but it, it's like you're looking at a genre work and, and there's, you know, it's very, you know, people in literature don't have as hard a time. People who are trying to make a great drama, it, well, it doesn't matter if it's slow. If you don't like it, you're uncultured. Yeah. But that's the point of genre. The genre has to keep you entertained at the same time as possibly trying to provide you with something. I think. Good. I think you know. To make it very simple, I just think when we do have when we do have our action sequences, we're just invested in it, so it doesn't seem boring or, or vapid or action for action's sake. It's something exciting happening with characters that we're invested in. I think that was just like Spielberg's skill at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean. I think watching it again, and particularly watching the second one as well, I mean, the thing that you kind of look at the craft, really, um, I mean, this is what Spielberg has a quality of his, his productions, and particularly visual kind of tricks and kind of a language that he injects into. And there's just some lovely stuff looking back, that, and you see echoes of it in in uh, Last Crusade. You know, things like introducing characters through shadow so that you've got actually people this happens a couple of times i noticed you'll have a dialogue between a character looking looking out past the camera but they're talking to a, a shadow that you can see on the screen that, i mean that's kind of sophisticated and, and indy often appears as a shadow first and, and therefore the hat is so iconic in that and there's just parts of it that you kind of miss in modern filmmaking really that kind of craft you get caught up in a lot of films now and it's all about the spectacle and the splendor and the effects and the, the just like they were saying kind of moves through it a blur and you're just kind of bewildered sometimes by the pace of these things um and i'm looking at michael bay here with the transformers um and yet because it takes a little time you just see this kind of craft come together you know and it was actually really it's something i'd missed and actually, Mr. Bit in Spielberg anyway, he's kind of become, that's a very, he's playing more on this because of the pulpy setting. Um, and um, he only really kind of went down that route again was when he did the uh, um, uh, the recent indie film, which we're not really probably going to talk too much about. But um, And I, yeah, I kind of liked that, savouring that, the cinematic qualities of that again. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that uh, Spielberg's an interesting duck as well for this because if you look at those films that he's done, I mean, really, India, sort of, you've got Jaws, then you've got Close Encounters, and you've got this, and you've got 
this I and of course Duel before Jaws and and it's that idea that he became known because he could put you on the edge of your seat with these things uh, but then he wanted to create an atmosphere and he used Indiana Jones as a vehicle for bringing that out and then later on of course you've got his things like Saving Private Ryan where he does that and then weirdly as soon as you get to like AI and Minority Report he goes into this thing of like now I'm trying to do something completely different mm. uh, I want to create a sort of uh, classic sort of Kubrickian sci-fi atmosphere and he feels that's that's stretching but honestly I mean it's it would be really hard to keep doing uh you know Indiana Jones yes. Lost World well, it would. I mean, he, can, he pretty much and he doesn't now so. no uh, well you pretty he, he got it you know he did it I mean you can't really go if you could, if you want to do that kind of feel, you can't really beat Raiders. So where do you go from there? He's a well, young man, you know. You know at this he, stage. he came into this because he wanted to make he wanted to make a James Bond movie, and obviously yeah. he American director. It's interesting what I was saying because I was saying to Leo that the pacing and the kind of locales. It was if you're taking all the pulp things, I said it, it does feel a bit James Bondy um, kind of indie films. It has that kind of uh, just kind of pace and feel to it. Um, so, and, uh, especially when you see half the locations that have appeared in Bond films as well, kind of coming up. If we're going to take on to the, uh, if we're going to take on to the, the James Bond aspect for a second, one of the interesting things about it is that James Bond, Ian Fleming, kind of identified a space in thrillers where he said, "Well, what?" And again, it comes back to this idea of a history professor who who's, who does archaeology with a bullwhip swinging across chasms. It, it, the, James Bond is an office worker who goes out and, and you know it's all about suits and menus and the reason for all the different locales is because it's tourism it's mm. not you know you're, you're doing mind tourism you're going to these exotic locales in your head um, and the, the interesting thing about Indiana Jones is, uh, versus James Bond is that James Bond is a model of composure whereas Indiana Jones is a model of barely getting away with it by the skin of his teeth and doing stuff like you know saying don't go between them in a very loud boat he's like what do you say go between them you know and you're like oh god whereas this is a mistake James Bond would never make uh, he would he would know that saying don't could get lost in the engine noise. Yes. To go go around go around yeah. but then the irony of it is that what they imply through the film is that if he if he'd have got the sentence right, they'd probably have died. Whereas, yeah. in fact, it's the fact that he's getting away with it by the skin it's of his teeth. It's kind of that's... idiotic luck, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's... He's a literally archaeologist who could. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, so, so, I mean, we've kind of crossed between uh, Last Crusade and Raiders there a bit. We'll come back to more Last yeah. Crusade in a bit. But, yes, as you said, Temple of Doom follows this i distinctly remember a trailer for this being on before i saw the movie and it was, it was, it was i think it was a while it was like a kind of prelude thing and this thing is coming so it wasn't like a trailer trailer and it was up talking all the locations this 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 movie was going to be set in and it get disappointing when i got to the actual movie and basically it's he leaves shanghai and then gets on an airplane and flies over these locations before eventually crashing down in India or wherever he was. Um, so that, that, that's stuck in my mind about it. And also the fact that once he goes into the into the tomb full of traps, he doesn't come out again until it's all resolved. Um, and it's pretty nasty once he's there. 
Um, so yeah, definitely a much more disturbing. And it was definitely a movie I didn't want to stick back on and enjoy for the pleasure of watching, like I did with Indy as a kid. But Justin, surely you should uh, you should lead the discussion on this one. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, Temple of Doom has often been kind of criticised uh, because because it is tonally very different. But I mean, uh, and where do you go from Raiders? You know, you've got this film. It's like well, apparently you rip some guy's heart out, then burn him alive. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say though, it I I really enjoyed it because I liked the darkness of it. Now I'm a bit older now. Now I'm watching this. This is 1984, I believe. So now you know, um, I'm I'm obviously living, breathing Raiders. I would have seen it umpteen times on video now, and uh, so obviously it's great to revisit. Uh, but I mean, it had it had the basic elements you want from uh, an indie film. Okay, um, it had the humour. It you know not but toned down, not quite so light. Well, not lightened at all, like the like the first one. But you've got you know the creepy crawlies. You've got the traps. It's a it's not jumping all over the place. You know, it stays to fewer locales. But you know, I I really enjoyed it. I have to say, I I liked the fact that I kind of the moment with the heart ripping scene, I kind of thrilled at that. You know, that was kind of really, and it's really pulpy that stuff. That's really far more in tune with with the kind of the early kind of literature and the feel of those things. That's really dark. The, the you know the the kind of mysterious uh, east and all these kind of things. It's it's tapping right into that. So it's a much, you know, and it's it's different. So it's not about the kind of Christian mythology and the Nazis. I don't get a mention. It's about something kind of darker, and so I I totally completely different, but I I still you know put it up there as a you know I really enjoyed it. I know it was kind of wasn't it had that tone? Wasn't someone going through a divorce or something? Is it is that being reported to why? The filmmakers might have had yeah, so a slight going, difference. They're both going. I think uh, Lucas and Spielberg are both. There was both kind of some, some, there's some kind of, you know, some kind of meta things going on there that may have shaped perhaps the darkness to it. But I think it's, I think it's important because you can't, you can't say you can't go more than Raiders and Last Crusade picks up and, and does that. But I think, you know, I think it was brave to do something tonally different. But I think it actually sits very well. In the in, in in the trilogy, in the possessed child labor, the uh, yeah. fem- female right, love interest is just annoying throughout. Um, uh, short <laughs> well, round, seriously, bring on, bring on, short round. So, you know, it's yeah. My feeling on it is that you know, it's weird because one of the things I noticed of, about uh, Raiders was that actually uh, some of, the, I, I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously, it'd be straight in on the 12A these days. But it still gets away with a PG rating. But when people get shot in in Nepal in Raiders, you see bullet holes yeah. and blood and, and the end. stuff. And then of course the end. Um, and and I mean you can see them in the difference between the end of Raiders and the end of the Last Crusade. You see, yes, it does have that gruey moment at the end of the Last Crusade. But really, it's a mo. It is a moment. It's allowed there. Whereas in Raiders, it's kind of sustained, and the you know the sustained menace, as they say, the ratings board. But you know, in Raiders, when the guy gets punched into the propeller, and when you know all of these things that happen, or I know he's standing up and he turns around too late and gets like wallowed mm. by the propeller. But the point is that you know when people get punched, they bleed and all this stuff, and you suddenly realise you know films are taking place in a different kind of 
headspace now. Yeah. People don't want to see their heroes bleed, and they don't want to see their heroes making other people bleed. Everybody wants to do anything without any consequence. Whereas in Raiders, there's a lot of consequence. And and just to say, well, this takes place in the same world, but because it's necessarily a nastier movie, you know, it's a nastier situation, it's going to be a nastier movie. It's like it takes away the fact that, in fact, in Raiders, there's some pretty strong stuff. It's just it, it moves on to yeah. something else. You know, you've got monkeys dying of poison dates and all of this yeah, well, kind of stuff. it was a Nazi monkey, though, uh, Leo, so, you know. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> a Nazi monkey. Well, then, then sod him. Uh, but, yeah, I think that... Um, and I mean, there's also this theory that it's like, you know, George Lucas is sitting there and they're going, well, we've come up with a story idea, but is it not a bit dark? And everyone goes, and he just goes, Star Wars, Empire. And they go, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. So, you know, they, they well, you know. Well, to, to, to talk about other things, I mean, I thought the opening sequence it was very good, but it is a lot more 007 than, uh, you know, it's the closest I think it has come. He's even wearing a tuxedo as well, isn't it? But mm. I think the other criticism the film's had, other than the fact that love interest is just annoying, comedy relief at best, uh, is that it's a it's a bit racially and culturally insensitive with its portrayal of, you know, let's all have our monkeys' brains. Well, that I mean, the problem is that, that what it's they're pulp, doing, though, isn't yeah. it? And pulp wasn't really. I mean, if you look at what was going on in the pulp world, uh, well, yeah, but it, even now you can't do, you racist. can't do Fu Manchu so now, can you? I mean, that that, that was that was uh, sheer no. pulp. Uh, no, but there are still. The idea of strange, weird places going and 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 odd, unsettling things about the culture is all about kind of pulp. You know, the hero going into these 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 strange places, and it's that's where the mystery and the and, fear comes from. I mean, because, yeah, these days, uh, I mean, you know, what does it say about the fact that you know, at least in the nineteen eighties, you go, well, of course, this is based on pulp and it's set in you know the nineteen twenties and what have you, and therefore, you know, people's attitudes, we culturally understand that people's attitudes are not what we might expect of the modern world, and, and you know, therefore, and you know, and people can rationalise and explain why these things are happening. Now they don't want to have to explain it, and yet we, we you know, everybody's banging to, you know, Lovecraftian mm. horror these days. H.P. Lovecraft was a card-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan, and therefore, possibly, all his stuff about tentacles and God knows what was based on his, uh, you know, very real disgust at the notion of other people having different coloured skin to him. And it's like, but people, because it's not explicitly mentioned in the, the text, people are like, oh, but that's fine. And it's like, as long as we don't talk about it, it's fine. And it's like, well, great. great glad to see we've come on in our attitudes about, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it's like, yes, there's a cultural reason why it is the way that it is and and it would be you know that's you know so yes and then some people don't understand that cultural reason Mm. fine whatever you know i i I think few people would really be offended by it being racist because it's not like monkey brains or whatever is it's so silly and preposterous and I, it, it, it's not like something people will use as an insult for anyone. You know what I mean? It'd be more. There are more offense like Fu Manchu and those kind of things are more offensive just because you know of the of the taking a stereotype of a, of a person and a and a race, a physical. So I think it's like a stage. It's a stage removed from that. 
I mean, I think it's, it's, you're saying it's it's no worse than another country doing a film where they, they go to London, or well, it has to be London because it's Britain, and, you know, there's red double-decker buses and red telephone boxes, and everyone, like, wears a suit and tie and talks formally to each other using their surnames, and there's you terrible said, teeth, and they all sit around and have roast beef. You're saying it's it's no worse than that. It's just a cultural it's, it's perception. It's no worse than someone, I don't know, well, taking yeah, a, I would be. I wouldn't be mortally offended no, by that. I, I mean, would just go, well, well that's we would, and obviously, yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> we're so cultural dominance. It's no worse than an American making a movie of one of our great cultural heroes and then cocking up the geography of the country and then taking our character and speaking in his own accent throughout the entire movie. Not that anyone's ever made a movie like that in 1991 no. called Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, no. or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think if they had a, you know, if they had an, I, I think it's just there are things to be offended about, and I think in that type of film, I think it's difficult to be affect. I, I would well, it's difficult. I'm not in that position to, you know, in a in a more minority position to take to take that yes, kind of role. Yes, so all the white guys are. But it's I, not yeah, a I, 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 It's a it's it of all the films. I mean, if it was a serious. Anyway, I, I, I think there are worse things that you can do. I don't think I don't think it's t- such a bad sin, personally. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, in, in all of the indie films, uh, although to a lesser extent in The Last Crusade, the first two certainly follow the Lester Dam pulp master plot and say, uh, you know, well, in, in the, because he's an archaeologist, he, they always take the element that the enemy wants something you know, Ed MacGuffin, as Hitchcock would have termed it, and it, it's a sort of fight over that thing, so that's fine. That's the, the angle of the whole, you know, setup. And then you basically spend the whole story putting the hero into deeper and deeper danger until, you know, he triumphs over the black cloud of menace that hangs over him. That's your basic lesson then, you know. And it's like, and this has to happen in the first act, and this has to happen in the second act, and you want a twist here, and that's it. And it does that exactly, every time, more or less. Yeah, think of Temple of Doom, images that come to mind, it's it's the dinner sequence, it's the rail cut sequence, is obviously very iconic, probably the, the best sequence from the movie. We have the, probably the rope bridge showdown as well seems to lurk in the memory too. And it's also a prequel, do we want to puzzle over that yeah. for a moment? Um, well, I think because basically anything set uh, after Raiders should involve the Nazis because they're obviously such a powerful force. And an obvious bad guy. It's very difficult to go, well, meanwhile, someone else is going on. So I think it works in that in that you can now completely forget about them. I know obviously they're still active at this time, but we can now focus on something completely different somewhere else. And we're not then going to be even assuming they'll be involved, you know. And then it takes that break to come back with Last Crusade. And then you're not thinking, oh, not another bloody Nazi mysticism plot again. <laughs> Well, um, so I yes. think actually that works, it's and also of... you don't question. You then it hasn't got Marion Ravenwood in it, so a sequel set immediately after you'd go, well, why isn't she there? And so it, well, because it's... there's because you don't really think about that in the third film because there's already been that vast time as happened. It's it's the Bond principle of the girlfriend reset, you know. Yeah, so I think it helps. I think it, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not entirely sure why they came up with the concept of that. Um, but it might be something, to, maybe something to do with. But, I don't know. Yeah, but, but it seems to work anyway. The the prequel, there is yes, one of the few prequels that actually is not just a film made out of order. It, no. it, it does it, it says something else about uh, its subject. 
I mean, I think one of I think they've got a bigger problem uh, in Last Crusade with the absence of Marion Ravenwood in the fact that because it's a prequel, you can kind of understand how Indiana Jones goes from being a sort of effectless uh, adventurer uh, who hooks up with random dizzy blondes in Shanghai and mm. what have you to being the kind of guy who gets into a more serious relationship with someone uh, relatively more interesting mm. um, and kick-ass as Marion Ravenwood. Then when you go into the third film and she's inexplicably disappeared and then there's some blonde Nazi hanging about, you, you don't really understand no. what well, that, was, that was a very good bait and switch, I, I, I felt. But then you know, as you, as soon as it be, it becomes clear that this is a kind of a buddy movie with with Sean Connery, yeah, you then that's when that character anyway in the plot becomes oh well you're not you're clearly not you know it almost happens to the you know to the second where you kind of go well, it's about them now it's not about this you know love triangle or, or any kind of romantic involvement so it's just a blonde character you know it's just this glamorous character that serves a function at the beginning. That you think could be the Indians involved with, and then you soon realise that he's obviously pretty stupid. And okay, uh, yeah, and now well, it's, now it's moving on. Now it's we, not about that at all. We were supposed to think, oh, she's going to be the love interest this time round, and of course, like yeah. it's a bait and switch. And of course, you know, it's a uh, it's it's a it's a love story between a son and a dad. They they come to appreciate seen, each other. We've seen the mistake of cramming it all in with the fourth film, where you've got the love interest, then you've got numerous other characters all coming in. So actually. Ooh. The mistake back. they made there, they didn't make in that because having having uh, Marion Ravenwood and Sean Connery and all other kind of things would probably have confused matters. Where actually it's a very clean affair. Now it's about their relationship, father and son, the jokes between them, and they are given their moment to enjoy that to the end of the film. Yes, and and don't we all love? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Are we, are we in Last Crusade now? No, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Um, but. Um... Yeah, a Temple of Doom. It, it's not a film I overly watched many times. It doesn't overly lurk in my memory. No. Certain sequences were obviously very memorable and very good uh, action sequences for themselves. Um, Leo, did you have any strong feelings on the movie at all? Um, not really. I mean, I did this. It's, apart from the fourth, I mean, it's weird. I've seen the second and the fourth one at the cinema. Oh, actually, I did see Last Crusade. Yeah, I've seen all at the cinema except for Raiders. Um, I think there's definitely a feeling, unlike Empire Strikes Back, where I think what happened was people went to see Star Wars, they enjoyed Star Wars, then they went to see Empire, and they were like, well, I wasn't expecting that. When they came out, they were like, gosh, wow, Empire, eh? (laughs) Uh, Whereas with this, it was like, they came out and they go, ooh, that happened. Mm. Uh, (laughs) And it's like, well, you know, darker, wasn't it? Yeah, hmm. Yeah, and then somebody would say the classic line, "I'm not entirely sure that I enjoyed that," and that was it. You know, I mean, maybe in retrospect, then after you've had time to integrate with it and understand, you come to love it for what it is. But nobody ever needed time to come to love Empire for no. what it was. They just went, "That was awesome." Oh, yeah. um, I'm fairly sure people walked out of Empire feeling that was probably not what they were expecting. I think it kind of grew on them. Um, yeah, but I think by the same time, there were certain people, the people who were very hardcore into Star Wars walked out and they were like, that was the best Star yeah. Wars movie ever. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, it's it, it certainly not, I, you know, I think few people would consider it better than, you know, Raiders. Um, but still, you know, it's you shouldn't dismiss it because it's, it, it's, it, it's important for the trilogy. 
you know, and it's good to have a revolution. You know, it's brave to have do something different. We don't want to see everything exactly the same pace. So I think it's 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 it, it sits in there nicely. Uh, yeah, sure, it's not my favourite of them, but you know what? I it's got it's 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 Indiana Jones still at his peak. Harrison Ford at his peak. You know, uh, so it's got it's got those elements. So it's certainly not kind of come out of it going, oh God, I wish I'd not not seen that. Uh, which some people, I'm sure, would have said for the fourth film. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, Crusade. Um, I, I loved it. I was much more older than when I saw it, and it was a lovely, lovely film as far as I'm back. A return to form as far as I was concerned. But Justin, once again, I feel you should lead us. Well, as- you know, they, 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 they. Look, how can you? Uh, you take Raiders and you go, right, we want to make things, we want to, you know, they're clearly, they want to, this is a few years have gone by now, it's 1989 now, and they're like, we want to recapture the magic of Raiders. Okay, that's the aim here. We want to have all the spirit and everything else. So, obviously, you know, we're going through our checklist. We've got to, we've got to have Nazi, you know, mysticism plot, of course. Okay? Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, the same kind of like locales. We're going to have... We're going to have the Daniela character. Um, we're going to have the uh, the oh, I can't remember the names anyway. The other characters. Well, yeah, we're going to put all these kind of things in there. We're going to set it up, um, and then how can we make this better? Or how can we put something in here? Well, let's add Sean Connery. <laughs> I mean, there, there are a few people that you can just drop in there that will have an instant kind of like ooh, you know. And he's one of them. You know, he's like this is perfect. Who else? Who else could you cast as Indy's father? But not only that, not only but it's not about him being cool and everything else. No, it's the fact that he's the humorous. He's still, you know, the humor, the more, you know, you can see where he's vulnerable as his bumbling comes from. And that's personified completely. And I would imagine his it, mother was pretty capable uh, in his mother because, you know, the father, even though capable academically, he's completely hopeless, you know. Well, it's interesting because I think Spielberg and Lucas are completely different takes on what the father is like. Uh, Lucas, and this is very clear if you watched his Young Indiana Jones um, series, he's he's a lot more academic, he's a lot more emotionally shut down and and, and repressed, and, you know, he's very bookish and la-la-la. But uh, Spielberg, and of course I think Connery, just saw him as an older version of Indy. He was just the version of Indy that's yeah. got a bit too past it. But he had had adventures of his own when he was a lad at Indy's age. Um, I mean, obviously, in the young Indy Jones, Lucas's vision prevails. You see the young... When you see him younger, you see him as a very stern kind of character. I don't see him as that stern kind of father figure. But still, I see him as someone who maybe really isn't... I mean, he's not... The way he acts and deals with things and causes problems... He's not. He's kind of like a slightly more competent the Dead of Ellen character. He's he's playing it for laughs. I mean, he would well have been more competent as he and clearly academically. There's no. There's you know he clearly is very competent and the, the the kind of his research. But he's more because he's more academic. He's you know he's not as physically capable. But that adds to the kind of the bouncing back between the two characters. So I mean, I really watching it revisiting say uh, very recently. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I liked all the references to the first film. The things they did there is what really they should have, when they were making the fourth film, they should have looked at. This is how you can take something that is cherished and embellish it and show a lot of kind of, you know, respect to the first film, uh, but bring out different facets of it and try and do something different. It's what fourth did and kind of failed. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of throwbacks. There's a lot of little nice touches, if you know. And there's a lot of little things in jokes there, which I know about, like the dog being called Indiana, which is based, that's kind of George Lucas's dog, who was called Indiana. Also so the inspiration for Chewbacca as well. Uh, exactly. So there's some nice little touches. I love the opening sequence. That is like... You know, well, so that tells you so much. I remember just being like watching this, going, "What are we watching here?" This is it, but every every part of that is telling you something. It's building the character of Indy. You know, whether it's the you know the kind of uh, the whip mark on the chin, the Harrison Force has got that that mark, um, the scar. It's whether it's just you know the fear of snakes, whatever. It's building beautifully in a fifteen minute sequence. It's setting up, we now, you know, we love, we love Indy, but now we're finding out why we love him, why, why all these things happen. So I think it's a, and it sets up, of course, the film, the structure of the Holy Grail quest. So I think, I think it's a really well put together film. I think, I think, um, definitely a second favourite. It, it apes the first one and it evokes those, but it brings something else to it. Well, to go back to an earlier discussion, we're talking about Indy and his two facets, his bumbling professor type and then the action adventure type. And of course, when you see the third film, you realize that actually he's kind of he's kind of aping this adventure he once saw when he was a kid. Yes. Uh, and so it, that that was interesting. You know, that explains, you know, he, the bravado he's yes. putting on for it is where he gets it from and where he gets his hat from as well, which he cannot bear to be parted from. Yeah, absolutely. And that guy, of course, has, doesn't have any of that. So he's quite ruthless. But he's got that twinkle and smile, that guy, you know. Yeah, he he's not, you know, he's, he he's, a, he's mercenary, but he's far not more on the, on, you know, he's, he's far more out for himself. But still, there is some element of that that he's seeing in there that he respects. Yeah, because the guy's or like, no, no hard feelings. Like, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to get Indy into any more trouble. Like, well, just give me the artifact back and we'll call it quits, despite all the trouble you've caused. To... Yeah. Sorry, the kid, you're not going to win this one. And also, Indy kind of gets... What's the word? He kind of gets that, you know, it belongs in a museum, which is kind of his raison yeah. d'etre. He suddenly gets that in this movie. That this is what it's all about. It's about preserving the past, so we can, you know, put it in glass boxes, and, and the people can come in and look at the past we used to have on this world. Yeah. Uh, Last Crusade loved it tremendously. Um, although Spielberg did later, after he made sort of Schindler's List, he did kind of go back and apologize for the comical Nazis, you know. For, just to help, just how bleak and real Shinner's List is, and then you go and see these comedy, uh, comedy bumbling uh, evildoers too. Yes, well, I don't think he needs to. Well, I think, I mean, problem. The, the point is, yeah, I, I think that he's lost touch with the fact there that uh, in pop fiction, particularly uh, of Americans, uh, during the war, you, you know, because you're actually fighting the Nazis, you have to make them stupid when you, you, you know. Um, when well, you, it's the whole when the whole meeting fiction. Hitler and, ha- and having the grill book signed by Hitler. It's a wonderful gag, but then you make Schindler's yeah. list and you go, hmm. And then again, not very appropriate to someone who's lived for the Holocaust, really, is it? Yeah, but it's very appropriate to a culture that's fighting the Nazis and producing fiction, which yeah. is what pop fiction is. Yeah. Like Hitler frequently made appearances in things like Captain America and so on, as just some idiot. And that's and that's the point. It's propaganda, and they're, they're what they're doing there is they're simulating anti-Nazi propaganda. These guys are stupid. Hitler sees the Grail Quest, and all he does is think somebody for, wants his autograph. But for all that, when you see the female character and she's looking, that's quite poignant. When she's looking at the pile of burning books, that did affect me. And she's got a tear in her eye, and she's mad. The matter that the fact that she's a Nazi and she's bad, she is still someone who respects learning. 
And it's just a little sequence, but there, yeah, okay. But it's it's symbolising the fact that there are they're doing more than it's not joking. Well, yeah, where you, a for your first there, books, you know, next you're you know yeah. erasing you know a history there. So I mean, it, it's yeah. I, well, I can understand why he might do that because obviously Schindler's List, you can, you're going to be you're going to come out of that pretty you know that's going to make you think about a lot of things and a lot of depth. But I think the joy of Indiana Jones is the fact that it doesn't take that too heavy. You know, it, it is meant to be. Let's punch a Nazi. You know, <laughs> it's it's we want we want that rather than oh my god, let's see what they're doing. You know, you wouldn't want him busting into Auschwitz and seeing all the horror there. That just would tonally be completely wrong. Well, of course, the other film where he fought the Germans, um, pretty bleak. Uh, military affair and saving Private Ryan as well. There's not much fun to be had there. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think there's a pl- place. So, it's a yeah, I mean, film, yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's, it depends what you're doing today. Whether you're writing something, quote unquote. See, although that what's really interesting about it is that uh, Raiders, uh, for example. Uh, because it's new and because you have to sell the story, I think it has this. The reason why uh, Last Crusade kind of falls a bit behind Raiders is because Raiders has this thing of I'm trying to sell you the story and the character concept, so they put touches in to make it see quote unquote serious. Whereas you know, Crusade is like, well, we, you know, we're here. This is yeah. what we, you know, <laughs> this is Indiana Jones, we're fun. and so they, they, yeah, they just there's to a certain extent. Too much fun in Crusade. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a bad. Do you think? Point. Do you yeah. think for, for the modern audiences, we could even call the film Crusade? Do you think they'll be insensitive? Oh God's sake! Yes, <laughs> in their Jones and the Last she had, we'd be a bit put we don't have to, we? You know, we don't have to jump on the politically correct bandwagon, please. Um, yeah, and you know, it, it's called in the end, Jones and the Last Crusade. There we go. It's, it's that's what it's called. That's the name of the 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 film, uh, and I think. Definitely, there is this thing of, are we really, you know, are we really come to a point where people used to be able to appreciate things within the context in which they were shown? It's quite a subtle cultural dynamic surrounding the the Indiana Jones trilogy in the 80s to the point where now we can't do that. Uh, You know, it's like, you know, they were like, you know, when they hit upon this idea that Crystal Skull was going to be more like 50s pulp because it's moved on to the 1950s, they went, oh, thank God for that. There won't be anything religious or anything cultural or anything mm. that we can, you know, we could, oh, oh, I was having a bit of a heart moment there, mm. but now I've realised we won't have to tiptoe through this new cultural Comedy landscape. communists instead. You, yeah, you, you well, never <laughs> said communists, I hate communists. I was waiting for the line. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it all have to be communist? Well, there's a reds would probably be yes. what he said. It, it, it seems like the, the moment to to segue because uh, we have to it into the sort of the well, modern iteration. I think you know, the um, most disturbing thing about it is it's it's like it's like a dream I had once. Like guys, I had this bizarre thing, and it turned out to be real. The most distressing thing is like yeah, then Indy gets in the fridge, and there's a nuclear explosion. He survives, and, and then Jim from Neighbours turns up and vouches for him as a friend and not a communist. And then the guy from Transformers arrives, and then they go off and do oh. adventures together. And then they go to a tomb, but instead, you know, instead of uh, John Hurt playing, you know, a missing doctor. From Doctor Who. No, this time he's you know he's playing the uh, Sean Connery role this time round, and then Marion Ravenwood turns up, and then aliens arrive, and it turns out it wasn't the dream after all; it really happened. Oh my god! 
Well, the thing about it is the, the one factor I would say, right, there's two things that I, I have come to appreciate that, that really kind of make this not a very good movie. One, Shia LaBeouf. The end. There is no more to mm. that point. This guy is not an actor. This guy is not a movie star. This guy is like, there's no There's a, a, an actor called Terry Crews who plays uh, Chris Rock's dad in Everybody Hates Chris. And I always joke that whenever a film has Terry Crews, he's in The Expendables and, of course, The Expendables too, and he pops up from time to time. And the, I think the thing that he really embraced about playing Chris Rock's dad was that he actually got to do some acting because usually they just ask him to flex his muscles and look angry. But the thing about it is he's got this wonderful kind of nuanced comic sort of underlying. He doesn't take himself too seriously. And any time that Terry Crews is in a movie, it's always a pleasure to see him do his thing. Shia Booth is the polar opposite of that. Every time Shia Booth's on screen, you want to fast forward. You just want to get through it. You don't want to look at it. You don't want to look at it again. And that really puts the nail, the final nail in the coffin of it for yeah. me. Because otherwise, if he wasn't in it, you watch it and you go, well, it's not like the glory days, but at least it hasn't got Sheila Buff in it. That's what you say. You can't say that because it does. The second thing is that there's a difference between two people being in an underground sewer complex and seeing a, a sort of something that somebody has painted onto one of the walls and they say, oh, what is that? That's the Ark of the Covenant. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. And they walk on. And let's have a 20-minute action sequence set in that warehouse. You know, fans, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That warehouse. You know the one. Yeah, you know, that's like, hmm. I mean, on the other hand of it, when someone comes in and vouches that India is not a communist, that's the level at which you reference a previous movie. Because, of course, the reason they come to him in uh, Raiders is because they're not entirely sure that they trust uh, someone that some uh, Abner Ravenwood because all oh, the Nazis are talking about him, mm. therefore we suspect he might be a sympathizer, and that's that kind of that's the, that's a reference. Having a twenty-five minute sequence set in a massive fan service superstore is just like I mean that's obviously what it is. You start the film with a massive kind of slap in the face where it, it's a little bit like what's happened with the Star Trek Into Darkness backlash, merely ladling on tons and tons of crass fan service yeah. does not make people embrace something. You know, that's that's terrible, a terrible idea. And possibly the reason that I was immune to this is because I wasn't I'm not a huge fan. I'm like, okay, fine, you're doing that. And I still would have been like, it's still a bit rubbish. But I don't. I think I understand that if people who've embraced the previous movies, that sequence just by itself, we'd be feeling that Sheila Buff's not even in that bit. You know, it's just like, oh, really? So he's going to go hopping about inside that um, that big, you know, thing. That's what's happening, is it? Right. Well, there's just there's three points I wanted to stab at. The first is, you know, there's a lot made of, like, you know, communist hysteria in America. The thing is, in this movie, it's justified hysteria because you do have convoys of communists going about into American air bases stirring up trouble. So paranoia justified. Uh, the other one is Ray Winston's character makes no logical through-line sense whatsoever at all. Uh, even Ray Winston, his, his take on it was, well, he doesn't know what side is on, does he? He's become delusional because of the war and everything. And the other point I want to make was the mythology of the Crystal Skulls themselves. I mean, Lucas had obviously read the book about the Crystal Skulls and therefore was a Crystal Skull um, mythology nut. I would say possibly buff rather buff. than nut. 
nut. Well, buff. But it's fairly well debunked, the Crystal Skulls. We all know it, it, it was just something one person made up to, because they had a Crystal Skull that they lied about retrieving from a tomb. Uh, and and it, it's all completely manufactured. It is complete bunkum. Uh, uh, that's what the Illuminati want you to think. Yeah. Well, of course, but it's it's like it's such a it's such a recent and, and well documented kind of yeah it's all bullshit. It's the only place you'll find any you know anywhere that will push it would be those dodgy documentaries you see on Discovery Channel. You know, there's there's no truth to it whatsoever, and we know this for a fact. It's not like it's some ancient artifact inscribed from a text that's thousands of years old. So we so we can't we can't possibly get any you know corroborating evidence that isn't isn't biased or lost to the antiquities of time. So who, who can who can say? Um, um, no, we, we know that's a whole load of horseshit, Mr. Lucas. I'm sorry. And um, uh, I'm not too bothered about aliens, particularly. I, I felt it was a bit necessary to say they're not really aliens that just come from another dimension. I mean, spinning hair, hairs here, guys. Other planet, other dimension, doesn't really matter. They're life from another place. They came to Earth in a flying saucer. Uh, look, it's easy to kind of jump on all things. And I will draw on some some things that are definitely wrong about this but let me just kind of i'll talk about the positives first okay uh one you have to treat you have to treat uh, the fourth film i mean he's not part of the original trilogy and that that is uh one is it, it's mainly because of the time difference okay um, oh yeah they, they waited now, 10 years it, too late to make an indie film uh it's too late it's filmed too late so it is now does not fit in the same genre okay i mean it's pulp but it is not specifically 1930s pulp, cliffhanger pulp, okay? It, it is now a different place. So I went with this knowing this, uh, and actually this was more apparent at the cinema. It actually, I hadn't noticed it on the smaller screen. But when I watched it at the cinema, the colour saturation was different. And uh, as far as I understand it, it was set up to resemble kind of 1950s science fiction films. They did something to it. And I understood that going into it. And so I was going, look, I'm going to treat this as a separate thing. So uh, so I was very forgiving uh, initially when I watched it and obviously quite excited to see it. So so I like that. I like the fact that let's go, let's take this pulp, but obviously pulp in the 1950s, 60s. And that's obviously about different things. So it is about, you know, uh, my, you know mind control and whatever, aliens, whatever, to a certain extent. It's, it's a different thing. And obviously setting the Russians up as the bad guys makes sense from that. So all of that, I didn't have a problem with. Um, so I watched it. I, I must admit, I didn't really warm to Shia LaBeouf at all in it. Uh, too many characters. I, I kind of got thought at some point a bit messy. Certainly, uh, 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 yeah, anyway, it is, it's, you know, reintroducing Marion Ravenwood was great, but only as a kind of, a, I understand, just as a fan thing, didn't. A little sloppy, but then I started thinking about it and what it was was fundamentally wrong with it that didn't feel like an indie film. And for me, you know, the point of an indie film is that he has to solve a problem. He has to, you know, uncover something. OK, and there, and that has to take you on the journey. He's 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 worked out the trap and the riddle. Um, and um so when I was watching it, the point where he's trying to find the, the skull's position and he's worked it out like this cave. And, and I, I'm thinking when he gets there, obviously, there's going to be some cunning trap and it's not going to be there at all. He's going to have to he's going to find something else and he's he's going to have to you know think about it. And he just turns up and goes, you know, there's not really any traps. And he just goes, oh, and, and there's the skull. And I'm like, what is that? And then, of course, the bad guys turn up and take it from him. But 
come on. I mean, the opening sequence of Raiders, at least the same thing happens, but at least he has to go through various things to outwit the, the traps in the, in the temple. But he just kind of cl- clambers over some rotating stone thing, and that's it. So I was like, what? It's not even... Even the bit to get to that one didn't require much of a stretch. So essentially, you're robbing him of, of who he is, really, at that point. The, the academic who's also the action adventurer. And then, you know, as you watch it, you just, you see this terrible kind of, oh, we're, we're setting up, you know, this character to obviously replace Harrison Ford in future franchises, which is oh, their God. original intention, which I don't believe is happening because anyway, Charlemagne seems to have self-destructed to oblivion. So thankfully we can be saved from that horror. And it, the rest of it is kind of like, I, you know, I, if I want to see Indiana Jones and get all that spirit, I can I can watch Raiders again. You know, I I is it enough for him to be on the screen now? Currently, you know, with all this stuff, maybe not because you know I think I think the Shia LaBeouf thing definitely kind of marred me. Like I need to forget that. It it has to be said that um, they they haven't kind of completely screwed the pooch on that because to be fair, you could just hire Michael Angarano, who is like. Shia LaBeouf's good twin. Right. He can act. He was in. Uh, he was the kid in uh, Forbidden Kingdom, and oh, okay. he's been making some independent movies, which I've watched recently. And he's actually a pretty good actor, pretty solid. But he looks. The problem that he's probably got is that he looks remarkably. Is that Shia LaBeouf? Oh no, it's Michael Angarano. Um, and and yeah, if they hired him to play the same character, so they, could pick it up. they they could do it. And he's he's obviously got chops for it because yeah. he's been in the Forbidden Kingdom, and he was pretty good in that. So you know, they, they, it, it, you know, it's not unsalvageable. No. But the, that film, the the film itself, is unsalvageable due to the high content. Now, warning: this film contains Shia LaBeouf. I mean, he really is insufferable. You can't watch him. Most of it, I mean, uh, uh, his career to date just tells you that you can't watch. It's just t- terrible. And that's the one thing. I mean, the rest of it will be okay. Well, I'll forgive this and I'll forgive that. Um, I, I think they've picked. You've picked through. I can understand their reasons for doing almost for doing everything except casting Shia LaBeouf. Mm. The reason that he doesn't do all that, um, you know, like when you're watching, like when I was watching Last Crusade, and they're like, "They're on the window, three, seven, ten, blah, yeah. blah, blah," and all this, you, you kind of start to get this feeling. The problem is that Indiana Jones is a victim of his own success, and not only that, but unlike The Matrix, whenever you see something rip off The Matrix, you go, "Ah, there's something ripping off The Matrix." Indiana Jones, on the other hand, has inspired people to do things. And then sometimes you know it's inspired by Indiana Jones. And then other times, like I was watching uh, two films last night and I turned to Justin and I was just like, the people who made Assassin's Creed must really like Indiana Jones. Because several touches in mm. Assassin's Creed like there's a point in uh, when the, the the young Indy whistles for a horse which is as everybody from the third one on in in Assassin's Creed that's what you do to summon mm. a horse and you know they go to Venice and there in the background is one of the towers that is reproduced over and over again as an asset in the Venice section of the Assassin's Creed and of course the, the Holy Land is reproduced and the, they have chase sequences and there's so much of it and it's like wow despite the fact that there's obviously lots of other stuff in Assassin's Creed as well 
they obviously really like yeah. the Indiana Jones movies because the things that are like Indiana Jones are so obviously nods to it. Yeah. But nobody goes, everyone says, oh, Assassin's Creed, that's kind of a rip-off of Prince of Persia and Thief. And you're like, okay, fair enough. But then they don't say, and it's like Indiana Jones. But it is. Mm. Oh, hell, it's yeah. like Indiana Jones. Um, I mean, Ezio is basically an assassin version of Indiana yeah. Jones. And, of course, you've got the, you've got the Christian kind of artifacts the apple yes, and all those kind yes. of things you've got that you know which we were discussing you've got that idea of, like you you you, you refer to it again as kind of you know the tourism aspect of mm. historical tourism you know you're seeing things that are in broad strokes you know mm. uh and it, it and that's what you do when you play assassin's creed you get the historical stuff but obviously it's it's you know it's there main, mainly and adapted to make the adventure exciting so yeah absolutely i, I mean I, I, the whole thing where that one of the big features of the original assassin's creed that they've always kept is that when you go into a city there are crowds hmm. and, and of course computers before the playstation 3 and xbox 360 couldn't really render effectively a big crowd like a big city full of people um, and they found an algorithm and they made it work and i'm not sure they even knew why they were doing it they were because you know you would have to be you know, putting all the ducks in a completely, you know, particular row to realise this. But in fact, it's like when you watch Cairo in Indiana Jones or when you watch any of those, you know, the bustling streets, that's what they're trying to simulate. Mm. They're trying to simulate that exact sequence with the, the market yeah. and the things. I mean, and you're just like, this is exactly what they were trying to achieve. This is this, this exact thing. Mm. It's, the mood is identical. But it's at such a deep level that it's like almost subconscious when you try and do it. And, you know, you don't have to be conscious that's what you're trying to do. So, it, it, so the, what you're saying is all this stuff has obviously existed between the films so that making, putting all those back in a, in the fourth film, people would think that you're copying the audience. Well, it's they might not, think that you're copying that or they might think it's derivative of other things. And I think there's a certain the point. Source material. I mean, of course, Lucas uh, Arts went on to make all these games and the idea of, I think even in 1989, the idea of that, he was three and he was seven and he was ten. Yeah. People got computers and point and click adventures and they were used yeah. to doing that. And I think George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were both like, yeah, he's either going to have to solve a problem that's so obscure that people might not even understand what it is. But if he solves like what is essentially a, uh, you know, a Sudoku or a crossword puzzle, like he did in the last ones, I don't think people are going to think that's cute anymore. No. I think they're going to think it's annoying. And so they, they, they were left hamstrung yeah. by their own. So, I mean, really it's the time thing again, isn't it? Really? Basically, you know, in all honesty, even though I was really excited about the fourth film, I mean, I think basically it would have been probably best just to leave them as a trilogy because they are of the time and set, you know, not only of the time in terms of when they were made, but when they're set and breaking yeah. out of that is really difficult. And they and I, I, I mean, I think if you could have, I think there are mistakes that were made on top of, I mean, there were mistakes that were made. So I think that you you could have done it if if you'd not had Shia LaBeouf, if you'd had, you know, had someone who was actually quite likeable. <laughs> uh, and, a, and a worthy successor for the hat, you know, you get, and the reason you get annoyed about it is you like, that guy does not deserve to have that hat. That's the thing. You're insulted. And he doesn't get it, of course, but still it gives you the possibility that he might do because, oh my God, Indiana Jones might die and then he might just get the hat and, and you're incensed by it, you know? Um, so if they could have easily cast someone who was worthy that you would actually look forward to seeing after, 
you know, ND passes, someone step up to the plate. Um, so, yes, they could have done that. They could have done stuff with the plot that was, you know, made more sense. There was lots of things they could have done. So it could have been a credible, a separate thing, you know, trying to do something. The problem is they, they kind of screwed enemas up. It's not, as, as you've said, I think it's still redeemable. I think you could, if they made the right choices, make another, you know, to redress those I mean, points. The good thing is that, but, in, you know, Indy and therefore Indy's son are both infinitely recastable. Yeah. I mean, young Indiana Jones is two separate actors, one who is very young and uh, Patrick, Sean Patrick Flannery, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, so that's the two young Indiana yeah. Joneses. Then you've got River Phoenix who sure. split slots in there somewhere. Uh, so you know we could see a, we could see in, a scene, we could see a prequels yeah. set when Indy was in his twenties. Yeah, yeah. So that would still well, work. But no, what I'm saying is, if you wanted Indy Junior to go well, that yeah. character who was played by Sheila Buff, you just recast him as someone who's more yeah. like Harrison Ford, who's older. Yeah. Because Sheila Buff was supposed to be playing like a that's late true. teenage version of that. So, you know, you just go, Possibly, well, he's older now, you know, so he's a different actor. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it is salvageable. It's just that it's a shame that, you know, this is probably going to be the last film we'll see Harrison Ford in in that role. Well, unless they're going to make something in the next four or five years, but, you know... You can console you can console yourself with the fact that at least he married off Ravenwood in the end, so he settled down. Yeah, I mean, way. you know, it's it's it ties that up. But I mean, I will always you know see it as properly as a trilogy. I think it's like an interesting thing yeah. that's happened that I look at and go, okay, fair enough. I see what happens in well, the future, but really, I'm much more interested in you know. What I think happened before that point. What happened in in 1981 is that you made they made a film where it's like people accepted that this was like a, a love letter to uh, something that happened happened in the past, and but and then they gave it latitude for and it acts exactly the same as if I was reading an old pulp magazine. Mm. So that's fine and that makes me happy. We've come to an age where it's like, well, we're not allowed to do that anymore. We're not allowed to. If it can be a love letter to the pulps, but it has to be completely politically correct. It has to be racially mm. conscious. Thanks, Prince of Thieves, for this, by the way. Mm. Just like you know, a random black character. You know, all of this kind of stuff. It has to be, you know, and 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 the model of a successful action movie with a nostalgic tint these days is uh, Captain America: The First Avenger, yeah. where. It is made quite plain that all of our modern attitudes to things are correct because even though Captain America is kind of fuddy-duddy, he didn't have the 60s and all that kind of flower power stuff to weaken his, his sensibility. You know, there's only one God and he doesn't look like that, Mom. You know, that kind of thing. Well, that's kind of quaint. It's cute again. It's like, that's fine. People are allowed to be like that. It's always a personal choice. He's not putting it on anyone else and he's doing all this. And the character has been made... You no, he's a modern guy. This is the irony of it. Although he's supposed to be a fish out of water, really he's a representation of everything we think is good. Mm. And the reason is because he comes from the past. But it's made quite plain that the past, well, that was a nasty place. You don't want to live there. Mm. And that's that. You know, that's the point. I mean, it's like Indiana Jones doesn't work the way that he used to as a character. Now it has to be more like Captain America has been made by Marvel Studios. Uh, is that sad? Yes. Can we get back to something else? Probably. Uh, you know, all things pass. Yeah. And eventually there will come a time when people can recontextualise what they're watching in their head according to what it's supposed to be again. 
and we can stop all this nonsense. But now well, is not that time. I, I think it's only a matter of time until, you know, may, maybe another generation will pass, but there will be another indie film. And it won't be starring any of the original actors. It'll all be recast. Maybe it'll be a reboot, who knows, or just an insert in, into the chronology of things. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, Spielberg, Spielberg is still relatively a young man. I can see him revisiting it. Certainly, certainly, I feel that Lucas was the, was the dead weight that was pulling everyone down. I would like, creative. I would like Lu- Lucas to. He seems to be in, in retirement now. I'd like him to stay there. Well, he sold off in into Disney, so is. Disney might action on the property. The thing about the thing about Lucas, that I have to say, is that he did all this the stuff that he did because things was. I think you can now obsess over details to a much greater degree than you could in 1981 because the digital era has given us so much, many things that we could obsess about. Mm. I think he's recently had this awakening that really he's keen on enabling digital technology to be used to its full present potential, but that possibly he's not really the guy. I think stop the, you know his prequel trilogy, we could, I don't think it's even a hope because he obviously sold Star Wars to Disney. I think this is a symbol of him going, I can't do this. Well, he got the message, you know, yeah. the fans responded and quite vocally, you know, after the prequels, they said, don't make it. We don't want you making any more films because he had plans for, you know, for three more, you know, uh, you know, of which um, to some iteration, they're going to be made. Uh, I don't know how much they'll follow his his original plan. But anyway, they're being made, you know, more films being made. And, and so, but they fans said, please don't. But when don't they, stop, yeah. step away from it. And but, to his credit, he looked yeah. at it and went, you know, they're probably right. <laughs> when, I, when I saw um, the, the, the documentary that Keanu Reeves made about the transition from making films with, you know, the traditional way that they always had been up until the advent of digital cameras and then digital, uh, I found myself amazed to be on a side of an argument. On one side, there's Christopher Nolan, and then on the other side, there's George Lucas. These are just like figureheads for those particular positions. And I'm on George Lucas's side against Christopher Nolan. Christopher yeah. Nolan's like, nope, won't use digital. Nope, it's horrible. Nope, it's never going to happen. And George Lucas is like, it's going you to You absolutely happen. need visionaries to take it yeah. on. That, otherwise, <laughs> in off, in, in, with any field, things stop and they're stagnant. You can always have people that uh, hark back to that, and that's fine. Though those those people have a place, but you will always need the people to drive it. But yeah. but you know well, you have to recognise your talents and your strengths. I think it's a false dichotomy. There's a difference between you know it, moving on to digital technology and the flexibility it gives you, and smearing everything in CGI or you know having just constant spectacle. So spectacle yeah, that, becomes meaningless. It's it's not. It's false dichotomy. Technology. You know, and it is how you use it, and that comes down to yes. you know your directors. You, you yes. know, that comes down to the skill I, of knowing yeah. when to use stuff. And, 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 <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, to bring it back to Indiana Jones, I think the Indiana Jones quadrilogy ably <laughs> demonstrates the difference between someone in 1981 making a movie like there's a bit in the in Raiders where. Uh, Indie, in quotes, because it's not indie, it's some stunt guy, gets pulled along by his whip uh, behind the back of a truck. Uh, and, it shows, and Spielberg uh, obviously spent some time in doing this thing where he goes over the bonnet and then yeah. you get a stuntman going under the truck, whip yeah. by whip, and then he like he gets dragged out behind. And I'm sitting there in 2014 going, ooh, yeah, yeah? because there's it. no way, yeah, there's no way yeah. that you can fake that. And that's the way a, they filmed and it. And that actually is an absolute staple yeah. of Western. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. that's an established stunt. Yeah. So that's yeah. a you know. Um, 
but then you then you watch something today and people are getting punched through buildings yeah. and you're just like popcorn, popcorn. Yeah. What's happening next in the people plot? made a rubber? No, it's not. Well, like I said, it kind of just felt more honest looking at that. It was quite refreshing to see something that is not you know splattered but, I mean, with you know, Tony Jar uh, on back uh, Warrior King and the raid last year with his yeah. martial arts yeah. is there are still only Asian filmmakers now seem to have this thing of no we're going to film the-, because you can still film things in such a way that it's like yeah. well no this is real this is really happening yeah. in front of your eyes um, but but we just don't. It's only certain people who want to make martial arts movies who now do it. I don't know why people feel that it wouldn't be. You know, if I can sit here today, having seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, at least that will probably be the fifth or sixth time I've seen it, and then watch that and go, ooh, and feel yeah. that excitement at seeing a guy dragged behind a truck on a piece of rope, then surely you could just do it in a new movie as well. It would be just as exciting. Yeah. And, and yeah, whereas obviously people feel, filmmakers, film studios feel, they do have to steep everything in deep wells of CGI. We are starting to come out of that now. I think that, you know, the point is there's a finite number of visual things that you can achieve using CGI, at which point you're just repeating yourself. Mm-hmm. And as soon as people are like, oh, we want a dragon. Yeah, we've done that. What, you mean like in these 10 movies here? All oh, right, okay. Or, you know, the minute it becomes a palette of things that people are familiar with, that it's not, we're going to show them something they've never seen before. Mm. Once everyone realises everyone's seen everything, people are going to have to use it more wisely to yeah. get people into the cinema. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think we're, on the, we're on the cusp of that, that era as we speak. So, yes, if people wish to disagree with uh, our thoughts on CGI, digital, Indiana Jones, Sheila Buff, any of the above, where might they go to do that, Ian? Well, one place they could go would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. And once, once in the distant past, we had discussions. But of course, uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those, point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S Kids com. Uh, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is not the only place you can be found on the internet, no, because the Podomatic page only has our most recent podcasts. Uh, the legacy of our podcasts can be found on... Uh, LeoStableford.com um, and... Uh... I, th- I feel that their days are numbered. I will back from holiday. I've moved into a house. We're not planning any more birth- family birthdays in the near future. And therefore, you know, I think I will have a little bit of time to spend moving across. So uh, stay tuned, uh, uh, as I've always said, uh, for that. But at the moment, leostablefoot.com is where it's at, where you can also find other bloggy type things that I do and also links to my uh, Wattpad, where currently uh, you can still enjoy the first eight parts of uh, of, of the Elias Anomaly, which is uh, a serial that I am writing for the foreseeable future. Uh, Wattpad, in case you don't know, is uh, like a sort of deviant art for writers. Uh, is there such a thing for artists, Justin? Uh, there might be a deviant art for, uh, for artists. It's called deviant art. All oh, right, okay. 
Um, and you will find uh, smoothly moving on to uh, plug for my own my own stuff there. So you can find examples of my work on there on my Deviant Art page under the name Justin Wyatt and World of Teeth. So, in conclusion, how do I accept the ludicrousness of Indy getting inside a fridge and surviving a nuclear blast? Very simple. Full film doesn't count. Perfect. I think I've resolved <laughs> my issues on this one. Let's proceed. I, I, well, I like to keep it in a in a separate room. Yes, so it's the first of the Shia Buff trilogy. Too often, I think it's... there is also there is also the fact that uh, such an event was a staple. Of, like in the 1950s, you got blasted with radiation and you turned into a green rage monster or a man ant or a yeah. You know, I, I, I a, didn't have a huge problem with it. Yeah, because I it's personally. it's it's the kind of thing that happened in 1950s. There are worse oh. things the films does that annoyed me. Yeah. That did not annoy me. I just thought it's very silly, but I went with it. Yeah, the nuking like the, the fridge. This, this, yeah. So in fact, well, yes. That I I do also understand the idea of that that making like all the other films you have a mountain the car comes down and oh this is the the exotic locale and this is a gopher hole that's the kind of thing you do at the beginning of the the zucker abrams zucker yeah, parody exactly of I, yeah that not was what i'm doing i think so you know but uh there we go so let's go away and uh break out our indiana jones uh, box sets and soothe ourselves by uh, not watching the last yes. one, but watching Let's the other. Let's have a one. young Indiana Jones marathon. Indeed. Yes, indeed. indeed. I mean, that was a. It's a bit of a shame that we didn't get to talk about that, and it's also a bit of a shame that I haven't bought the. But the please DVDs watch them of that. because they are really. I mean, they're really good stuff. I yeah. enjoyed them. They. Not as they. I mean, it's not so much adding to the films, really. They're, they're their own thing. They're just yeah. interesting, yeah. you know. Um, so definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen them. Yes. Absolutely. So on that final plug for the young Indiana Jones, it's time for us to say um, snakes. I hate snakes. <laughs> it belongs in a museum. <laughs> you've got you've out catchphrase me. You <laughs> Bye. Bye. You could have said you hated Nazis. That would be a perfect way to end our podcast. Uh, you're waving your sword and I, I pull a gun up and shoot you. Is that <laughs> Perfect.